Welcome to Sisters in Stoke. I'm your host, Megan Burks, a certified professional coach specializing in ADHD and embodiment practices, steel mace flow enthusiast, and recovering perfectionist whose life has been guided, for better or for worse, by the motto, let's fuck around and find out. On this podcast, I interview women and those who identify as women who have done just that and whose honesty, bravery, vulnerability, and curiosity have helped them find their stoke, the thing that lights them up and has shaped their relationship with their body, their spirit, and the world around them. I share the stories that inspire me so that you too can find your stoke. Welcome back to the Sisters in Stoke podcast. I have with me today, Joel Suki rhymes with cookie, also known as the terror in some circles, who was born in Southwestern Pennsylvania in the United States, much closer to rural West Virginia than anyone was comfortable with. She started a long and unimpressive gymnastics career at the age of four because her father fell in love with Nadia Comaneci. I feel like there's a lot of young women who started gymnastics because of that. After finding the courage to abandon gymnastics for diving at the age of 14, Joelle's passion for competitive athletics was reinvigorated, if only for a short time. Not long after qualifying for the Junior Olympic Nationals, Joelle's diving career was put on hold to receive treatment for cancer. Her triumphant comeback was short-lived as cancer therapy caused damage to her hip, and she had her first hip surgery at the age of 17. With athletics on hold, Joelle focused on academics, graduating from Princeton University with a degree in psychology and began progress towards a PhD in biopsychology. Thankfully for the world, she is not a clinician. I just want to note very publicly, that is not me saying that, that is you saying that, because I think it'd be fucking fabulous if you were a clinician. While hiding from the terrible reality that is graduate school, Joelle discovered ballroom dancing and competed in international style Latin and ballroom dance for over a decade. When her second hip surgery sidelined her competitive endeavors, she turned her attention to teaching dance and yoga. As they say, third time's the charm and Joelle had her hip replaced several years ago and is finally pain-free. In the height of the pandemic, she discovered Steel Mace Flow and received her SMF Level 1 and Level 2 certifications. She also dabbles in other flow modalities, including rope flow and Indian clubs. So after years of constantly reinventing her physical self, Joelle is finally thrilled to be still working a day job for the time being and teaching ballroom dance, yoga, mobility, and steel mace. Her five-year plan is to give up the glamorous world of corporate douchebaggery in favor of helping people find movement modalities that light their souls on fire and provide them with the tools to partake in them without pain for as long as they desire. Joelle Cookie Rhymes with Cookie, welcome to the podcast and tell me, what are you stoked about? What am I stoked about? Wow, that's broad. It is broad currently, and we got time, I, so go for it. Well, currently I'm stoked about having the day off of work, so yes. that was fun. Yeah? Yeah, and I just, I, I, I'm burning my vacation days and I used the time to have lunch with a friend. I watched some stadium stairs. I took both of my terrible dogs for a walk. I did some heavy gata. My father and I made gatas, and I, by that I mean mostly he made them and I painted them. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm getting comfortable with my 20 pound gata, so I did a little bit of that and, and uh, just had a pretty chill, movement filled, fun day. 
that sounds like a really perfect day to me. Um, I want to start by just highlighting, I guess. So when I reached out to Joelle, uh, I remember there was an email that you sent back to me saying like, thanks for thinking I might have something to say. You know, is this your first podcast? First of all, it is my first podcast. Another podcast. You are getting my podcast virginity. Podcast cherry popped. I've had quite a few of those. And the reality of with this podcast, the title Sisters in Stoke, the women I have invited to be on this podcast are women that to me are embodying this kind of fierce commitment to their own joy in what I see. Now, obviously, I know you online. Um, when I think of you, I think of the fact that when I see a horribly inappropriate meme that really makes me like snort laugh out loud, and then I go to send it to you, and then I realize you actually posted it. So, you know, there's that, like, that is definitely a point of connection. But then obviously, as I found Steelmaster in the pandemic as well, and I completed my level one and watching you move and watching you take your mace with you um and do it in your cul-de-sac there was a video I saw of you not long ago and there's like a street performer and you're just swinging the mace around um but I want to start a little bit at the beginning here because obviously when you sent this bio through to me I had no idea I know you work in corporate douchebaggery I'd heard you discuss that before but I didn't know any of your history in terms of competitive athletics and things like that so starting with gymnastics did you love it did you love it at all or was that a really a uh, everyone should kind of try gymnastics at that stage. It was very popular. It was very popular. I hated it at first. I was four years old and I was terrified yeah. and my father took me and I wouldn't even hang on the high bar. Yeah. And the guy was like, yeah, she's physically, she's very, you know, would be great, but she's just a little weenie. Like, yeah. don't bring her back. And my father was <laughs> like, you're doing this and you better get on board. Um, so I, I got on board and so I hated it at first. Um, and I still have vivid memories of my very, very first competition. It was a very small in-house baby beginner competition. I was probably, I don't know, maybe six. And, uh, my, my best event was the beam and I was so good at the beam and I, this, I was going to get up there and it was going to be great. I did my mount and I fell off. I get back up and I do a few things. I did my little forward roll and I fell off. And, and you could see the coach just going. <laughs> I get back up, I do my backward roll and I fell off. And I was just like, oh, I'm such a disaster. But I kept going. I kept going. And somewhere, so it was 11 years. And I hated it at the beginning and I hated it at the end. But there was a big chunk in the middle where I really loved it. Yeah. Um, I don't have any siblings. And... You know, at sort of the height, I was, I was training five, six days a week, four or five hours a day. Yeah. Um, these girls were my family. These wow. girls were my sisters. Yeah. Um, and it was really, you know, great to have that kind of a social network. Um, you know, especially when, you know, girls are the worst, especially like, you know, teenage girls, middle school age girls, the, the worst. And school was just a nightmare. So to have my gymnastic family um, was just a gift. Uh, we went through it all together, you know, all the, all the wins and losses and broken bones and pains and all of it. And um, it built a really special bond um, that I, you know, that I still am close with um, some of my gymnastic friends from days of 
long ago. Um, and I will say it was really rough, but it, it taught me a lot about life. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, it taught me how to prepare for, you know, a lot of challenges. It taught me how to juggle priorities because, you know, when I'm 30 hours a week in the gym, I didn't have a lot of time for school. I didn't have a lot of time for anything. So I had to be very regimented in, you know, getting shit done. I like to say I live my life with very small error bars because you got to make the most of every minute, you know. So um, there was a lot of good that came out of gymnastics, um, but it definitely, there was definitely a cost to it. And I, I, if I had it to do over again, I would have quit maybe a few years before I actually did. So hated it at first, loved it in the middle, um, somewhere around the age of 12, 13, started to hit puberty and it just, you know, everything changed and I couldn't do the things that I, you know, I was working twice as hard to just keep us like, you know, at the level that I was at, I wasn't making any progress and it was very frustrating and I had definitely plateaued and I wasn't enjoying it anymore. Yeah. Um, but my father was a coach. He was not my coach, but he was a coach and he was very, very invested and having to tell him that I wanted to quit gymnastics was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. And how did he take that? He, I mean, who knows? Because my yeah. father is this guy. The stoic, the stoic guy to a fault. He yeah. is that guy. And so, I mean, you know, he took it well. And, uh, and, and to his credit, he has been super involved in everything that I have done. Uh, you know, he wanted me to be a gymnast, but I went from gymnastics to diving and he embraced that and learned all about it. And so that he could talk to me about it and, even when I, when I went to ballroom dancing, which couldn't have been more um, <laughs> out of his comfort zone or area of expertise, he learned about it. He, you know, he gave me feedback when I would send him videos and, you know, wanted to talk about it and my competitions and, you know, it was just very supportive. So I was very lucky in that, in that regard. It's really incredible. And it's, it's really nice to actually hear about someone describing their experience with gymnastics as so positive because, um, gymnastics obviously can be quite a toxic environment as well. I think that has a lot to do with the club where you train. It has a lot to do with the coaches. I think thankfully that's changing. Almost every guest on this podcast by no intention whatsoever has a background in gymnastics or dance in particular, especially ballet. Interesting. And hearing the variety of ways that that either was a really positive environment for them and a really safe place as we go through those very tumultuous teen years, especially or that it was an environment that was really quite awful for them. The beauty of it is that we're all women now in our 30s, 40s, 50s, who can look back on that experience and the lessons that we gleaned from it and apply it now to living a life that's incredibly full where we are maximizing, as you said, we're making the most of every minute because we know what makes us feel good. And it's really great to hear about your dad, you know, and having him helping you make the gatas, which we're gonna talk about in a little bit, but so I just want to go back. So you went from gymnastics. So you went to diving. Obviously, there's quite a lot of transference of skills and postures, yep. flexibility, mobility, all that kind of thing that goes into diving. Um, what were your favorite dives? What did you tell me about that experience? Because as someone who has I've jumped off of incredibly high platforms, 
but I've never done tricks or, or dove, that fear factor and the thrill that comes from literally like throwing yourself off the edge of something into the great unknown. How did you get into diving? Um, so when I was in, in, when I started in high school, the high school swim coach was like, why don't you just, you know, come to diving. We'll put together a list. You had like, you had to do certain dives from different categories. Um, and you don't even have to practice, just show up at the competitions and do your dives and go home. And so I was still doing gymnastics at the same time. I was doing both of them. Oh, wow. And so I went in one Saturday and we put together a list. You have to do, there were five categories. Um, and you had to do one optional dive from each category. So a forward, a backward, a reverse, an inward, and a twist. And then they had one uh, required basic dive. So, you, so they would randomly decide which one of the forward dive, backward dive, reverse dive, inward dive, or forward dive with half twist would be the first dive. And then your five optionals from the five categories would come after. Um, and so we just kind of went and I just, you know, put, put together what I could do because of my gymnastics background. Um, yeah. I was very, very good at twisting. So I mm. could do, I could do things that were, and each dive is assigned a degree of difficulty. Um, and, you know, the more flips and twists you do, the more points you get and it's a multiplier. So you get your scores and then it's multiplied by whatever the degree of difficulty is. So you could either do, you know, somewhat simpler dives, but do them, you know, impeccably well, or you could fling yourself around and, you know, maybe sort of get there, but, but have this really high multiplier. And, um, mm. that's, that was my approach. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, not a big surprise. Um, so um, and, and at that time it was just the one meter. So just the low dive, um, that was all that I, that I did. Um, and you know, it got to the point where like, even with the minimal commitment to that diving, um, I couldn't do both because gymnastics was just too demanding. And here I am winning every meet without any effort in yeah. diving and gymnastics. I'm working twice as hard to almost be as good as I was yesterday. Um, so you know, on the face of it, it was a pretty easy choice. However, you know, with all of the emotional stuff, it wasn't so easy, but, you know, I made the switch to diving full-time and, you know, again, parents were super committed um, and they drove me to the University of Pittsburgh, which was about an hour from where we lived so that I could train in a pool that had a one meter, three meter platform um, and get the training that I needed, um, which was amazing. Uh, my favorite dive was probably that why I liked the three meter the best and like the, the high dive. I did do platform as well. Um, but my favorite was three meter. Uh, and my favorite dive was probably back two and a half, um, which was really, it was a, one big adjustment was, you know, gymnastics, everything was, you know, kind of not a blind landing. So, you know, backflip and you can see as you're coming around, um, but in diving, it was, you know, everything was going back, you know, a lot of, a lot of blind entries, um, that, that was a big adjustment. And, uh, I remember once early on that there was a, um, most of the twisters were, were also different than what I was used to. They, they were increments of half. So like one and a half back, one and a half with one and a half twists. And I was used to doing a back somersault with two twists. 
So I, I did all the prep work. I prepped on the, I did all the, the lead ups for the, on the one meter. And all I had to do, I did my one and a half twist. Literally all I had to do was go up to the three meter, do the same damn thing and bend over and dive, dive in. And I got up there and I did my one and a half twist and I went, nope. And I did my double twist that it was much more in my muscle memory. And I landed flat on my back. Yeah. Flat yeah. on my back. Mm-hmm. You know, anyone who I thinks learned. water is a soft landing has never jumped into water from three meters because it's like, if you, you know, if you don't have your positioning right. And I know this just from jumping off train bridges and cliffs and waterfalls and things. If you don't point your toes, if you don't keep your body tucked in enough, you know, you lose your you can wrench your shoulders. You can lose your bikini top pretty easily. I can attest to that fact. Um, mm-hmm. So here you are. So you're what? You're about 17 at this point. Is that correct? 16. 16, 17. Literally flying high. Throwing mm-hmm. yourself through the air. Doing really well. And then there's a cancer diagnosis. Yes. Tell me Tell me a little bit about that. Because that this, you know, this was a huge part of your story that I don't know anything about. And, you know, it's a huge part of my story still, even 30 some odd years later. Um, It's really shaped a lot of things. Um, So I was training really hard uh, and it was, you know, it was an hour each way and three hours of practice and four or five nights a week and school, you know, all of that. And I think at that point I was in high school and, and I was in competitions regularly a lot of travel not a lot of rest I was really run down and I thought oh, I'm just you know whatever yeah um, and, I, and I had this cough and this cough that just wouldn't go away and my mom remembers that it was like I coughed every time I tried to laugh she mm. remembered that sort of distinctly and you know went to the doctor and I got cough syrup and nothing helped no and you know and I just kept going I just kept going and um my regular pediatrician was booked and somehow I went to a different place and the guy was like, let's take some blood work and do a chest x-ray. And um, I had, I had all the tests done and they called my mom and said, we need you to come in. And you know, this is never a good thing. And I have a memory of waiting for that appointment, sitting on the back of my dad's truck with the with the tailgate down eating french fries from mcdonald's like freaking out and we're just sitting there like waiting like you know what's gonna happen and and we go in and he said i think you have cancer and my father the stoic one immediately starts sobbing and my mother who is like this emotional like (laughs) whirlwind um was like, okay, we're going to go to Pittsburgh where UPMC is the best hospital. We're going to, you know, she was like making the plans gone. and, uh, and off we went. Um, and I didn't really get to think much. Like no. there was no processing anything. It was like, you go into the, I was in the hospital for about two weeks. You go in, you have all the tests, they do the staging. They, um, they, they did a CT and they said, your spleen has nodules. So we think it's stage three Hodgkin's disease. Uh, Hodgkin's disease has a very orderly progression. It goes neck, chest, spleen, and then um, bone marrow, lymph nodes, the whole kind of metastatic situation. Um, based on all the tests, they thought I had stage three. And um, 
because the spleen had nodules. So they, they scheduled me for a splenectomy. They took my spleen out, chopped it up and said, well, good news is your spleen nodules are benign. The bad news is your spleen is in a jar in the pathology lab. So it's gone. So, you know, um, but so stage two was certainly better than stage three. It meant that my chemo wasn't as terrible. It was still pretty terrible. I had, I had nitrogen mustard, which was used as chemical warfare. Yeah. Um, so I had six months of chemo and one month of radiation and it was supposed to be, um, three months of chemo, one month of radiation, three months of chemo. And I don't know how I managed to do this, but I talked them into letting me do two months of chemo, one month of radiation and four months of chemo. And the reason that I did that is because I was being treated in Pittsburgh within walking distance of the pool. And I was still at this point, I'm still all about diving. Like I'm going to get back and I'm going to get healthy and I'm going to go and I'm going to dive again. Cause you know, I felt like I was, I had only kind of just started to started. Yeah. Scratch the surface and see where I could take this thing. Um, and so that was the, um, that was that that if I had done two months and then one month of radiation, that one month of radiation coincided with our summer tra- big training session, and it would have been much easier to train on radiation than on chemo. chemo yeah. So they agreed to that, and so I would my parents would drive me to, in the morning. We would have an outside outside training session. Then I would bum a ride with one of my teammates, and we would drive to near the University of Pittsburgh, I would have my second training session. I would walk down this ginormous hill. If you've ever been to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, it's got massive hills. Uh, walk down this huge hill, have my radiation, and then walk back up for a third practice. Fucking so I hell. did that, right? So I did yeah, right. that, and then, and I went to, so there, the, the progression was there was a regional competition that anybody could enter. You just had to like put together a list that met the, the difficulty requirements. And then if you, qual- if, if you qualified out of the regionals, you went to the zones. If you, went, if you qualified out of the zones, you went to the nationals. And the year before I had gone to the nationals. Um, so I said, okay, I'm putting together my list. I'm going to regionals. I went to regionals. I qualified for zones and I went to zones and I was dead last. And I was the happiest person who ever finished dead last in yeah. the history of the world. Because it's perspective mm-hmm. and it is, and it's, 100%. you know, I wish it didn't take things like a great loss or a cancer diagnosis or some kind of a tragedy for people to have perspective, but often it does that. I mean, this is the reality of our humanity. And I remember, um, you know, something had happened to me at one point and I remember someone saying, how does she describe it? Oh, it's, you just got a big old whack with the perspective stick or something like that. And I was like, you know, that, that's what it was. This, it was the thing that in any other circumstance would have been a horrible tragedy, but in light of other things that were going on in my life, I was like, oh, that's actually kind of crazy, you know? And so here you are. So you're still competing. You're still training. Um, which I imagine for you is something I don't know, but like I look back on times in my life where I could push myself at those levels, obviously nothing like this. I was never receiving chemotherapy or radiation. I've been with family as they've gone through it. I've seen how it ravages your body. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's rough. It's the treatments as bad as, as the disease often or worse for many people. Um, and so when did you, what was that moment for you 
of deciding. And I, I giggled when I read your bio and you're like, well, you know, athletics is on hold. So I'm going to focus on academics. And of course you can't just go to like a local college. You're like, I think I'm going to study psychology at fucking Princeton university. You know, one of the great universities of America. Um, so, so my dad was the, sorry, God. Didn't surprise me at all. You clearly are not someone that does anything by halves, which is most of the guests on this podcast and, and me. Um, so what was that moment for you? Do you remember that moment where, you know, there's this real fork in the road, I can keep pushing this or I can switch my, my focus and I can do all these things. Do you remember that process and how that, how that worked out for you? Well, so backing up a little bit before we even get to that, um, I, I, I did go back to diving, you know, I, so I, I, that was, um, 1989 was my treatment. I finished my key that, that was the summer of 89 that I just described. Then end of 89, I finished my treatment and, and I went back to diving and training, you know, full-time, not on chemo, trying to get back to where I was. Um, and I did that for about six months, um, and I started having pain in my hip and I, um, I uh, went to an orthopedic and they took an x-ray and they're like, oh, it's probably just tendonitis. Take some Advil. You'll be fine. And so I just ignored it um, until the pain got so bad and I went back and they had another x-ray taken and I had a stage three necrosis in my right femoral Ooh. head which basically means there was a giant crack in the head of the femur, the blood flow was cut off um, and I had to have surgery. Um, So that was kind of the point where I was like, you know, okay, this is, this is really on hold. This is, this is, and I, and I, I truly did view it that way, although that's not how it turned out. And I think part of me probably always knew that was not how it was going to turn out Uh, because the surgery was like, this is a stopgap. Like this is going to try to, at the time they said, we want to try to prevent you from having your hip replaced until you were 30. Um, it was all very doom and gloom. Um, and, uh, I went to Johns Hopkins, my mother, again, with the planning, she, this was, there was no internet while I was jumping around in, in the, in the pool and in, University of Pittsburgh, she somehow snuck into the medical library and started researching, you know, where the best places were to get treatment for Hodgkin's disease somehow. And, uh, and she found this guy who does this, this, um, that does this surgery in, um, in Baltimore. And we went there for my, for my hip surgery. And, um, and he kind of strung me along, which is not surprising, was like, okay, well, I wouldn't die for, you know, six months. Okay, well, I wouldn't die for a year. Actually, that's not true. I was on crutches for most of my senior year of high school. So that was, I was probably on crutches for six or seven months. And after that, it was probably another, I wouldn't die for another six months. Then I wouldn't die for a year. Then if it was my hip, I wouldn't do it. Um and all the while, like I had always been a good student. I had always joked this, this always kind of made people laugh. I said, I, I would, I would do just enough to get the outcome that I wanted. It just so happened that the outcome that I wanted was, you know, straight A's valedictorian, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, and so when all of a sudden all of my physical stuff was taken away, I was like, all right, well, this is what, what's left for right now. So 
you know, yeah. that's, that's kind of, that was that transition. Uh, but truthfully, and, and people don't understand or didn't really appreciate this. I took the hip thing way, way worse than cancer, way worse. Yeah. And people are like, you're alive. You're fine. Like, it's just a hip. Like what? Like You don't understand. My whole identity is tied up in this, in being yeah. a diver and being an, an athlete an at athlete, a very high level. An competitive elite athlete. Yeah. And, and not to mention the identity, but the time. Like I went from training mm. 30 hours a week to sitting on my ass going, what am I going to do with myself now? Yeah. Yeah. And that's before TikTok and Instagram when, you know, that was before any of it. Fill you 30 hours of your week pretty easily online. Um, you know, yeah. back then, especially when you had any kind of a physical thing going on, it's not a lot you can do in 1989, you know? True. Yeah. Yeah. So, you so yeah. So sports, sports took a back burner then to, to academics and I was off the Princeton, which was fucking hilarious because, um, <laughs> I come from a very blue collar background yeah. and Princeton is not. Um, no. <laughs> I showed up with all of my earthly possessions in the back of my dad's Ford F-150 truck. And <laughs> my roommate shows up with a team of Hispanic movers and her little BMW and, and like all, and I'm just like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> Yeah, but this is where I can imagine you now. Like, I guess, I guess I want to ask right now. You strike me as someone who is very unapologetic in the way that you approach life, and that is, and I, I see this a lot. Um, and for some women, that's been a real process. That's been a real thing. And then there's other women who are like, no, I've just kind of always been like this. Like, I've always been willing to go all in. For myself personally, I had always been like that. And then really, even the last couple of years, the pandemic, we had the longest and strictest lockdowns in the world here in Australia, where I live. That really shook some of my core foundations about risk-taking and uncertainty. And it's only been this year that I've been kind of going, oh, like, who's this scaredy cat I see, you know, and, and re-emerging. But you show up at Princeton, you know, I'm picturing the, the F-150, which is the car that I would choose over any BMW or any, you know, foreign supercar anything like that um what was Princeton like for you coming from that kind of a background and then being surrounded by a student body that I imagine especially at that time did not come from a blue collar working class background correct I did eventually <laughs> find my people it yeah. took a while but I did eventually find my people um yeah no and it was it was very humbling in a lot of different ways I I never fit in but I didn't fit in in a whole different way yeah. you know yeah um and academics like like I said I you know coming from like a shitty school and the the last person before me who went to Princeton was like 25 years prior yeah okay so we we were not it was like a crappy public school and these are kids who went to like Andover and Exeter yeah. and you know all of that the and best so private schools I, in the country I struggled academically. I, you know, I was getting my B's and, you know, whatever, but it was, you know, it was a challenge, um, but it was so, so worth it. One of the greatest things about being at Princeton was that um, Southwestern Pennsylvania, where I grew up, was very homogenous. There were mostly white people. There were some black people. There were no, there was, in my school of 1200, there were two adopted Chinese girls. Um, everybody was some flavor of Christian. Um, so it was very, very homogenous. Yeah. Um, 
And I go to Princeton and all of a sudden it's the world. And I'm like, this is so cool. And uh, I remember I got pretty sick my freshman year and my mom and my grandmother came to visit me and I was in the infirmary and my best friend Punkage was there, my roommate Jean and a bunch of her friends who were Korean and then another friend of mine, Valerie and her boyfriend, Kareem and my grandmother. And she said this, you know, she was making an observation not being judgmental, but she said to my mom, Javelle only has one white friend and she's Jewish. <laughs> uh, that's something my grandmother would would have said, and but it and it would have been a concern. Like she wouldn't have been able to comprehend that because she grew up in a time where like you you stuck with your own, right? Like the other well, we didn't have those people. Like there those yeah. people weren't there. It wasn't no, even a matter no. of sticking with your own. It was just like we were never exposed to all of these different cultures. And and to me it was really cool. And I, I would say the the best things that I learned at Princeton, A, I learned how to think critically. That's yeah. that's yeah. number one. You know, more than any other class, you know, that any any subject matter that I learned, I really learned how to think critically how to, um, you know, have an academic discussion, mount an argument, uh, yeah. you know, all of that. But I learned about the world because yeah, the piece of the world that I came from was so exceedingly small and narrow and narrow-minded. And it was just amazing to, to experience all of this. And I never went back. I, there was no way that was no. not happening. No, once that expansion happens, you can't put yourself back in that box, right? And yeah. I'm I'm jumping along here only because I'm conscious of time and I want to hear about your discovery of mace because I just think, you know, my own discovery of mace was so like powerful and crazy and exciting when I picked one up. But so but in in the midst here, which when this was the other thing when I saw online, it was like, oh, she's dancing. And I got really excited. I taught salsa dancing, taught for people who are listening to the podcast, there's really vigorous air quotes happening here. Uh, when I, I did an internship in Guatemala after I graduated from university and oh. obviously you go salsa dancing and merengue, um, street style, very loose, very, very, uh, very casual kind of thing. But I got really into it and that became kind of the thing that I would do in the evenings. And then I would help, I would help the white people who came to the Spanish school where I was studying learn how to move their hips. Now, for anyone who's ever tried to teach people how to <laughs> tap into sensuality, uh, like that was a real skill that I took for granted because I had this dance background and I could understand, you know, whether you want to talk about it technically in terms of isolating parts of your body while other parts of your body are moving or just being able to actually like drop your body weight lower and kind of flow in a different way it really blew my mind when I started to try to teach people some of these basics that some people just absolutely could not do this and very rarely is that a physical block generally it's a it's a mental block for people that they just they feel silly they feel stupid they feel like they don't uh, deserve sometimes I think to experience the kind of pleasure and sensuality that can be part of things like ballroom dancing um, and different different styles of that kind of dance. So you find ballroom mm -hmm. and you're like, fuck graduate school, basically. Not really. I don't know. Pretty much. Well, pretty much <laughs> that's what's happened, right? And <laughs> and you and you dive into dance. Mm -hmm. And then and then you've got another hip surgery. 
that comes up. Well, that's many years later. That's many years later. So I, there, I was dancing my way through graduate school, competing Latin (laughs) ballroom, international style, very, very, um, very technical. I think the commonality of all the things that I have done and have enjoyed are very, um, very technical, very demanding that you, you must master the fundamentals if you want to do it well. And maybe that's true of anything if you want to do it well. Um, But it seems like sort of, especially some of the things that I have done. Um, Yeah. So dance, you know, it just became the next thing I was looking to compete. I didn't know that that's where it was going to go. I really just wanted to get away from my toxic grad school environment. And I ended up finding my next thing. Um, And I cruised along with that for, God, that was, maybe I was in my 20, early 20s, mid 20s. I didn't have my next hip surgery till I was 40. Yeah. Um, So yeah, I did a lot of competing. I moved back to New Jersey, not by, not because I had any desire to come back to Princeton. That's where I am now. Um, It was purely happenstance. It was for a job. Um, And, uh, and it just, and when I applied for the job, it just said East coast. So it wasn't even like I had intentionally said, Oh, I want to go back to Princeton. And they're like, we're in Princeton. And I'm like, all right, that's fine. Um, It was super fun when I first moved back and I actually went to the university and I taught ballroom, the ballroom dance club. So I was not a professor. I was not like, I, you know, I was just like the, the, you know, the grown up in charge. Yep. More, more, more akin to a coach than, than anything else. Yeah. That was super fun. Um, yeah. And I, I found it's hard as a woman to find a partner. So I, I took a little Russian boy, 13 years younger. I trained him up and we competed for, for quite some time. Um, yeah. And then my hip got bad and I had my, my second hip surgery. So then I was reinventing myself again. Reinventing yourself again. And so this is, but this is to me, like this, this is why you're on this podcast is because the, the concept to me, and I understand some people find this really great and they can be really content with like being born and this is who I am. And they just kind of live out this one evolution of themselves for, for their entire lifetime. But to me, that seems incredibly dull. <laughs> and again, to have these opportunities to, to reinvent yourself and to explore these different things, you know, in, in your story, certainly some of that's precipitated by these tragedies or these challenges or these difficulties. And with you having to really pivot and go, okay, well, I can't do this right now because of this. What else can I do? And then we have a, you know, a fucking global pandemic, which a year after these lockdowns, I'm, it's almost fading into this place of like, oh yeah, the two years I had to be in my house all the time. Like it's so, such a time warp. It's so bizarre. And in the midst of this pandemic, you find steel mace. And originally this podcast was essentially going to be like a steel mace podcast because it is, it's my thing. There's I'm same as you. I explore lots of other flow modalities and skip rope and rope and um, kettlebell juggling to a ridiculously small <laughs> extent because they're like, no, release. I'm like, nope, I'm going to hit myself with the kettlebell. It's not happening. <laughs> um, the one time I tried it out in the yard a few weeks ago, I threw it and I landed in a pile of dog shit, which I did not realize until I picked it back up. So it was like, I feel the universe <laughs> is telling me to stick with my fucking mace for now. How did you find out about Mace? So like, where did you see it? How did you get your hands on? And was it love at first sight? It was. 
So it was Instagram. I credit most of the good things that have happened to me in the last, I don't know, three or four years have been through Instagram. Absolutely. Uh, social media gets a bad rap yep. uh, and it does, has done a lot of damage, but I, uh, you know, if you curate your Bingo. experience properly, it can be amazing. Yeah. Case in point here, here we yeah. are. Yeah. Continents away. Yeah. Connecting through those little squares on Instagram. Um, so after my second and third hip surgery, like yoga was the thing for a while because it was really the only thing that I could do that, that, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't able to run. I wasn't able to do like any of the, you know, so I was doing a lot of yoga and I started, I did my teacher training. I got bored of the style that I was teaching and I sought other stuff and I, you know, found a really, some really cool people on Instagram. And there was a guy in New Jersey who I've still never met to this day. And I still don't interact with him on Instagram, but he, he totally resonated with me. His thing was called, uh, he's the tattooed yogi is his Instagram and his, um, his studio, which is about an hour away, which is why I never made it there yet is called yoga rebellion. And so this oh, is all God. landing with me. I know. Right. I'm like, the, I'm the oh, bad kid. It's like the magnetic pull, right? You're like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally. Well, this guy does a very big, vigorous yoga practice, but he also has this, this like big metal pole thing. This like what the fuck is that? On the end. Exactly. And I'm like, what is that thing? I don't know, but I think I need one. So I ordered one from on I don't even know why I, I guess probably on it was the first hit on Google. Yeah. Um, so I got it and, and I was really, and you know, I, I think this is a pivotal thing for me. I really was pondering, do I get a seven pounder or do I get a 10 pound? If I got a 10 pound out of the gate, I may, I may have, you know, not stuck with it in the way yeah. that I did. So I got a seven pound. It shows up, you know, and I, I started Googling some videos shows up. So of course I open it up. The first thing I do is swing a 360. <laughs> and you can imagine exactly what that looked like. It looked like I, you know, when I do rumba, like my hips were all like, you know, it's like, how did I not rip my shoulders out of my arms? Oh, yes. You know, like, yeah. So I'm like, okay. So I started, and I didn't even know what steel mace flow was at that point, yeah. nor did I know that's what I wanted to be doing. I didn't even have the vocabulary. So I'm Googling steel maze and I'm looking through all these videos and I'm trying to copy. And I found some guy who was like working it on it, but he's not really somebody I know that's kind of, you know, affiliated with steel maze flow or anything, but, and I, he, he had a video tutorial of the waterfall. And I, yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah. so I'm out in my cul-de-sac every day with the waterfall flow trying to learn this thing and uh yeah and then I just started doing weird shit with it I just started like you fuck trying around to hold it in one head. hand and walk yeah. around yeah. And, you know like switch curls and you know like just trying all different things and trying to incorporate some ballroom with it and just you know um and I don't I wish I could remember when I realized like steel mace flow was a thing um probably after I started you know following some people on Instagram and started to see, okay, this is, this is the thing that I want to do. This is the thing that looks like choreography and looks like it's strength and, and crazy twirling and fun. And, and this is what I want to do. Um, so I, my first coach was um, Randy Owens in Canada yeah. and, and, you know, talk about um, 
finding the good in, in the shitty situations. I would not be where I am right now, probably, no, nor would you, because none of these people would have been teaching online. No, but I wouldn't I would have been not doing have... these online. I wouldn't have been coaching online. I wouldn't, you know, I taught my first face-to-face -face mace class last week. I traveled over and I got, I've got two nine-year-old girls that I coach and uh, a woman oh, and they amazing. all live in the same area and we all were able to get together and do it. But it's all been online and will continue to be because they live hours away. So yeah, right, Brandy right. is, is that Steel Mace Valkyrie? Valkyrie, yes. Yes, she's, she's right. Steel Mace Valkyrie. And she yes. was tremendous. Um, she she was the one. So I had a one-on-one -on -one with her because I was like, I realized I'm going to rip my shoulders off and yes. I need to talk to somebody who knows how to do this, who, you know, I, I, I'm not... Um, uh, arrogant enough to think that you know I could figure it out all on my own so I so I found a human that could uh, show me how to do this and I set up a one-on-one -on -one with her um, and she was the one who convinced me to buy a 10 pound mace yeah and she's like you're definitely strong enough and I'm like mm -hmm. that thing showed up boy was that a rude fucking awakening yeah because I didn't read the specs, which are all there in black and white for anyone to see. But I did not read the specs to see, oh, this shit is way longer and mm -hmm. way thicker. And so the difference between, you know, the 10 and, and the 7 and the 10 feels like 30 pounds versus oh, the huge. 10 and the 15, yeah. which are, you know, the same length doesn't feel like, you know, As when, much I, when of a I difference. 15. Yeah. Absolutely. So I was, I was a, a little bit like, oh my God, what am I going to do with this big fucking thing? Uh, but, you know, I stuck with it because I'm more stubborn than anything else. And uh, I continued to train online with, with Brandy. She was more, um, she taught a lot of um, sort of more traditional swings and yeah. she wasn't super into flow. And so once I kind of found myself doing more flow and the steel mace dojo was there for for a while it's r.i.p dojo but um <laughs> so i took with J with jamie pinto in the dojo um and he's about an hour from me in real life but i basically after the dojo closed i reached out to him and i was like i want to still train with you ah! i'm still here <laughs> i want to still train with you and so I'm his only Zoom student. He's got a room full of people and, and yep. me on Zoom. That's um, awesome. Yeah. And, he, and his community has been great, um, as has Intention and Flow. Um, and what's amazing about them and about Steel Mace Flow in general is that, you know, I, the things that I learned from Jamie and the things that I learned from Jeff are wildly different. Yeah. And the things that I teach my students are wildly, wildly different, different from either of those, you know, and, and even I remember seeing two guys in Miami uh, at like one of the trainings and they were just very different physiques and they were doing the masterclass flow side by side. Didn't even look like the same thing. No. Like they were doing the exact same thing, but you know, everybody can bring their own flavor interpretation, their yes. own flavor. All yes. of it. And I love that. Yeah. So it's been, it's been all about finding, what that is for me um, and I think uh, it's and really important to acknowledge too that I mean and that is something that that's probably one of the things that attracted me most to Steel Mace Flow other than Leo Savage very sweaty without his shirt on if I'm being very honest you know those were the first flow videos that I saw and he's just he's a beautiful specimen of a human being Right. And he's a really cool guy when you listen to podcasts and things like that. And you get to hear his story, what he's done with flow. 
but that that uniqueness that everybody was was invited to bring to this practice is not only allowed but it's encouraged and it's celebrated and to have had the experience with intention and flow with jeffrey oaks who you and i have trained and then you know lee's taken some of his classes um to watch how we all learn this flow together and we learn these fundamentals and we learn the basics of the thing. And then you're in short stance and I'm in tall stance. I'm always in tall stance because bitches love a tall stance as, as we all know, Um, you know, and, and you can play around with that and coming for me from a background of dance and then lifting where lifting is very regimented for good reason. It's not, you know, like, okay, I want you to go do a snatch and just you do it however it works for you. No, like you'll die. You can't, you know, there's there's technique and foundation and fundamentals that are really important for that sport. Um, but this is where you see those things that you learned in your years in competition of you master the fundamentals and the basics. Anyone who's introduced to mace, especially people who I've worked with who have come from a sport background especially from a lifting background they're like 10 pounds and then immediately they're like oh I can do a swing and they try it and they're like oh ow like oops and I'm like yeah I told you Demi like you actually you need to break this down you need to learn it because working with this offset weight is very very different and we're working in multi-planes and we're working in we're taking up all the space we're working in all this space and I think of it very much as, you know, the tagline for this podcast is FAFO, fuck around and find out. Those are the women I'm talking to or the women who are like, let's fuck around and find out and who continue to do that in their lives. But with Mace, you earn that right. You earn the right. Absolutely. Flow. You earn the right to FAFO and you do that by building your standing structure, by switching on for a lot of people, muscular pathways that have long been neglected, you know, and, and building that ability to isolate and to work in, in separate parts of the body and then you get to play. Um, and I'm really curious to hear. So when you start playing and you go out in your cul-de-sac and you're like swinging this weapon around were your neighbors, like what's going on or were they just like, Oh God, what's Joelle doing now? Well, so it's really funny. I really feel like I should have a lot more street cred than I do because I live <laughs> in a predominantly Indian neighborhood. Oh, Okay. Yeah. And I have a whole bunch of gatas and I started swinging clubs recently and they're mostly like, what the fuck is going on over there? Yeah. So yeah, they're not, one, one woman see. came up. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, the, the people, the people who do like, I, when I, when I say, uh, you know, like Hanuman and, and, and Gada and they're like, Oh, like then like, it's, they're it like, clicks. Oh yeah. yeah. But like, initially they're just like no that's what that's why jamie gave me the nickname the terror because it was the, the neighborhood terror because I'm, I'm out there in the cul-de-sac and the neighbors are just going what the fuck is happening <laughs> like here? walking really far around you like mm-hmm. giving you a wide berth totally but it's yeah. funny very funny because it's you know there's now a whole group of people that sort of unironically call me terror like they'll just be like hey terror how's it going like just like yeah you know yeah, yeah. and i've kind of leaned into that because it's kind of like you know it's it's it, it suits my persona but mm-hmm. i am more bark than bite for sure so but i but i i enjoy the uh the uh, idea of being the terror i enjoy the idea of you being the terror I want to come, to, it's, you know, the idea of castle storming, like going around at nighttime and like getting up to stuff while everybody else is sleeping and swinging your mace while everyone else is in bed and stuff. Like, 
Let's go mm-hmm. Castle Storm together. That sounds really good to me. Um, I'm curious to know, coming from that competitive background again, where it, your focus has to be so much on the sport that you're participating in, hours and hours a day, your hydration, your nutrition, your recovery, your this, your that kind of thing. And now you're at this place where you're exploring steel mace and dance and yoga and rope flow and this and that. So going from this like singular, very linear focus to a place in your life now where you're trying all the things, has that been this process of like massive expansion for you? Or has it been, do you ever find yourself going like, oh, I want to really buckle down on this one thing and, and just focus on that? Like, what's that feel like to you? Well, you know, what's really funny is that I ha- I resisted some of these other things for, for a long time. Like for a long time, I was just me. So I'm like, I don't want clubs. I don't want a yeah. rope. I don't want, eh, eh, eh. and I, and I got a rope and I, and my, if you go back and look at my initial post with the rope, it was like this fucking thing. Oh, I'm trying to make friends with this fucking you're thing. Like this stupid fucking dumb rope. And you're like, mm, exactly. what are you doing with it? Exactly. Um, and I'm not even sure why I got the rope, but I, they're, they're really complimentary. So I don't yeah. see the, and it's actually been, it's been an evolution over time and, and these things kind of all help each other. So yeah. it started with yoga and, and the FRC mobility, which I don't know if you know what that is, but if you don't, it's yeah. amazing. Um, FRC and Kim stretch certified. Yeah. Um, awesome. Love. That's love, functional love. range I, conditioning I, I, for anyone who doesn't know what that is. I'll put a link in the show notes. I yeah. um I fired my PT when I had my hip replaced and did FRC stuff to yep. get my hip rehab. Yep. My Amazing. PTs were fucking worthless. Um, so the yoga and the and the FRC kind of kin stretch stuff is really has been a game changer for me to keep my body able to do the flow things that I want to do. Yeah. Um, so the way I'm looking at it now is it's not as all over the place as it may seem. Dance is a little bit of an outlier. But, um, you know, it's all of the other things are in service of the mace. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, FRC and mobility help me to be able to swing every day. Yeah. That's the longevity side of things. I'm not willing to trade performance for longevity at this point in my life. So I just want to be moving and moving well as long as I can, you know? Yeah. Um, I like the way you just said in service of the mace. I'm like, the mace is the master. We bow down before totally. the mace, which, you know, I, totally. that. I worship my mace. They've got names. They've got personalities. They totally. teach me a lesson. Sometimes they play with me. Sometimes they spank me. You know, I never know what I'm going to get. And that's been, that's been the beauty of it for me. That very humbling, much like surfing for me. Surfing is the other activity that I participate in where Am I going to have a good day today? I don't know. Am I going to almost drown? I don't know. Am I going to catch a wave? I don't know. I'm just going to show up, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. and have a play and see what happens. And so yeah. I, when I watch you swinging, there's just, there's just such a joy. There's, it's a playfulness and a great tragedy to me as someone who works as a movement coach, I'm a qualified PT, but I don't like to use that word because the connotation of a PT indoors in the gym freeway, you know what I mean? That's so far removed from what it is I'm trying to encourage in my movement clients. It's just this invitation to like explore what our bodies can do without judgment with mm-hmm. compassion that can be really hard when you come from a competitive background. It can be hard to think, oh, I used to do this and I used to do that. And certainly aging for me and having to come to terms with like their shit that my body cannot do and potentially may not be able to do again. 
you know, there, there's, there's parts of my physiology that have changed significantly in my forties and, and I have to kind of be okay with that and just commit it to kind of seeing what happens and to having fun. You know, I think that's, would you say that's the overarching theme in your movement practice? Yeah. 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 Just having a good time with rad people. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, back to sort of being in service of the mace is Mm. that the rope and the clubs I'm viewing is also helping with the longevity like that. Yeah. I, that's my warm up. Like yeah. I'm not taking any classes. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'll look in, you know, I know like four moves with the rope and I know like three yeah. moves with the clubs, but it's enough to get my shoulders moving. Yes. It's enough to like, you know, it's enough to kind of ease into it that that's going to, you know, aid the longevity but so that I could be jumping around in my tutu in the cul-de-sac having a fucking blast for as long as I want. And rocking out on punk rock cruises as well. So obviously I'll be posting your uh, your Instagram in the show notes for this. So I hope a lot of people are like, oh, I want to see this woman with her beautiful bright lipstick and tutus and her crazy socks and her awesome clothes. You've got the best fashion sense as well. And her mace and just, you know, cursing a rope, whatever she's doing, um, rocking out to it and just having a really, really good time. So the last question I have for you before we wrap up, I know I just looked at the time. I was like, Oh my God, like we could keep talking for hours and hours and hours. I may have to have you back sometime, but I work with a lot of women who are either struggling to reconnect with themselves kind of in, in their forties after a stint where they focus on their careers or being a wife or being a mother, you know, so very much in, 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 the context of family or building a career and they've kind of reached this point in their 40s where they're like oh is this all there is and they're either trying to reconnect to who they knew they were when they were younger or they're exploring giving themselves permission to do that for the first time and you and I who are on the side of this process where we've done that and we know that the fear of not being true to ourselves is bigger than the fear of being judged by other people and we know the freedom that actually comes from going all in on backing ourselves. It's easy for us to be like, well, just fucking do it. Like who cares what people think, but that's not the reality for a lot of people, for a lot of women. If you said, Oh my God, like put on a fun tutu and go swing a mace in your cul-de-sac. They'd be like, no, like the neighbors will kick me off the neighborhood board or, you know, and, and that reality. So what would be your advice if someone's come to you and they've said, Joelle, Joelle Sookie rhymes with cookie, which is now what I call you in my head every time I, I think of your name. You inspire me. You light me up. I want to be like you. I want to be free. But like, I just feel this fear about it. What advice or guidance, I guess, would you offer to them in terms of giving them either, you know, a gentle nudge or a swift kick in the ass? Well, I just had this conversation with my mother who's very self-conscious and she was, she was asking me, she sends me a text, are, are boots still in style? I'm like, I don't know what to do with this information. I need more context. Yeah. And she's like, well, I have to go to your dad's golf club Christmas party and I don't want to go and I, I don't want to wear a dress. So I was going to wear a pant. And I was like, what do you want to wear? And she's like, I want to wear a jogging suit. I'm like, so wear a jogging suit. Yeah. And she's like, oh, but I'm like, so let's like just stop for a minute and think about like what if you wore a jogging suit like what would actually happen oh yeah. people would say stuff and so what what would actually happen then yeah like think about like think it all the way through yes and like what is actually going to happen like so you wear a jogging suit 
and people might be going, so what? You know, so you wear a jogging suit and somebody comes up to you and says, why are you wearing a jogging suit? And you say, because this is how I feel comfortable. And then they go, oh, okay. You know, yes. like, so what? Yeah. yeah. And what I left her with is what other people think of you is none of none your of goddamn your business. business. Nope. None of your goddamn business. So just get out there and have fun. And, you know, to correct perceptions in the, in the spirit of honesty, I, I I have always been that way in sort of my personal life, but I, I spent a lot of my life doing what I was supposed to do. Yeah. You know, and mm. yeah, like I was supposed to go to Princeton and, and, you know, get, have a good high powered career. And I was supposed to, you know, marry the nice boy and, you know, all of that. And um, it wasn't until I got divorced at 37 that I started really saying, I don't care what anybody else thinks really and yeah. truly. And, and, living living more of that and it's been awesome it's been awesome it, it's been a journey it suits you you wear you wear it well um well thank you living this fun-filled life it has been such a pleasure to speak with you and to hear more of your story and to hear more of the journey and the process that you went through to get to this place where you are living this way. And I can see your beautiful partner and your beautiful dogs, your terrible dogs in the background who do not look terrible to me at all. Um, for those of you, obviously, who are not watching the video, she's got, are, there, are they rescues? All your, your dogs? They are both rescues and they can't be in the same room at the same time. They hate each other. So we have this very elaborate switching protocol. <laughs> so this is, this is Rhett. He's downstairs right now. The other one is up in her room. Do you have walkie talkies? We're like, Shh, I'm about to move subject A from the upper level to the lower level. Please, please advise when the area is exactly. clear. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Exactly. Uh, thank you so much for being here with me today. I will see you online. I don't know when, because the time changes made it hard for me to get to the same class that you're doing at the moment. So I've been doing recordings, um, but uh, we'll have to just get to together and swing sometime online. Uh, that would be amazing. I will have to send you the link for the Sunday swingers. Oh, yes, please. Yes, please. I will I'm always send you good that down link. for a good swing session. And um, we certainly can share that as well in show notes for other people that are part of this community because there is still people um i mean it's a pretty small community very tight-knit in some ways but then there is other people who are just kind of at the start of their journey and i just really want them to know that everybody started awkwardly even if they're not posting videos of those first swings i wish lee that was advice lee gave to me she's like please take video of your early mace because you will look back on that in a year and be like oh wow i have improved those um, videos are amazing i have those terrible videos and they're amazing i have some my phone was always full so i don't have as many as i would like but certainly just the the confidence and the competence for me to just pick it up and play because i've earned that right because i put in the hard yards and i put in the time and i put in the discipline to learn the fundamentals and the focus and to have all of that as, as the base for it so now i get to play and now you get to play and we get to play together uh which is amazing so thank you so much for joining me um, and I will talk to you very soon. Thank you for having me. This was super fun. It was. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to Sisters in Stoke. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review and share the episode with your friends. If you or somebody you know would be an excellent Stokes person, feel free to get in touch. All of the information you need is in the show notes. Until next time, I'm your host, Megan Burks, reminding you to find your Stoke.